for speaking with author Jeff Ford at Worldcon 2005. Jeff, tell me, why does Worldcon matter and why does science fiction matter? Science fiction matters because it's a particular branch of literature. It's an expression of people's ideas, people's emotions. And science fiction is more than just the technology. It's a philosophy. It's uh, people's culture. It's any kind of literature that you could think of can be expressed in the, in the form of science fiction. Worldcon, it brings together people from different fields in, in, in the genre, and they can meet, mix ideas, get together, talk about ideas, and so forth. One of the things you said that was interesting about science fiction being every form of literature, in a sense, because science fiction really allows us to externalize our interior conflicts and give them an imaginative form. You do that really well with your novels, in your novels, The Physiognomist, and in The Portrait of Mrs. Charbuc. Talk a little bit about your work. Yeah, it's, it's, my, my stuff isn't what you would call a genre, quote-unquote, science fiction, but it all fits under the whole, for me, it fits under the umbrella of the literature of the fantastic. And what that is is that it, ideas are expressed or feelings are expressed through the fact that um, these unusual things take place. Sometimes it can be inventions, which would make it more science fiction. Sometimes it would be just a view of the world, like in my own book, The Physiognomy, where people's uh, moral fiber is judged by the way that they look on the outside based on the old uh, science of physiognomy from the you know, 1700s. But in, in the literature of the fantastic, you can have you can express any kind of idea that you want, and actually it can, ex it can be used to express ideas that you couldn't normally express in realism, so that you can get these kind of transcendent ideas across through uh, metaphors of the fantastic or through great inventions or through space travel. Uh, a character like Frankenstein, a monster, that you may not be able to express because you really can't put your finger on it in the real world. So these are great metaphors, and there are great writers in the field. There are, there are, most people don't realize that, uh, the quality of writing in this field. Some of the best writers around today are working in this field. Most people think of it as pulp or as comic book or as, you know, the kind of stuff that's tossed away. Really, they don't investigate what's actually out there. They see it as The Terminator or some big movie by Steven Spielberg, but they never really get to the literary core of, of uh, the literature of the fantastic that's there today. And that's a shame, because they discover writers that are equally as good as anything they'd see in mainstream literature. Tell us a little bit about some of the writers who have influenced you and that who you've taken out of their context and brought into the fantastic. One of the writers that influenced me, I went to school I, um, at Binghamton University. I was, uh, had uh, John Gardner as a teacher. Now, I think this is one of the things that led me into this field because he was practicing something back in the 70s that, was now, that now is the rage called fabulation. It's not a hard science fiction, and it's not completely fantastic like a Tolkien. What it does, it takes everyday life and shows the, the fantasy element of everyday life or the wonder of everyday life. Now, he was doing this kind of stuff, and, and a lot of it's based on fairy tale and based on fable. And so you have this thing called fabulation. And um, he was doing this stuff back in the 70s. That's all the rage now in our field. You know what I mean? He did Grendel. It's a story of Beowulf told from the monster's point of view. Uh, Mickelson's Ghost. Freddy's book is about a, uh, basically a deal with the devil. So he was doing these kind of works back then. And I had him as a teacher. I was reading his works. And he was very influential. And he never had a problem shifting into the fantastic out of 
realism. You know what I mean? Whereas now you have people, it's almost like we've taken a step back and people, it's a lot of writers are very, uh, you know, look down on that. But back then in the 70s, when I was growing up, you had Pynchon, you know, you had Coover, you had Gardner, you had these guys, John Hawks, they would all use elements of the fantastic in their work and wouldn't bat an eyelash about it, you know what I mean? And all very interesting structurally, too. And you find that in the, in the, you know, the, in the literature of the fantastic today as well. Tell us a little bit about how the literature of the fantastic allows you to experiment and expand with the structure of literature itself. You can have a basic linear storyline, uh, which is, you know, which is great. And nothing trumps that as far as I'm concerned. Just a basic tell the story. Just tell the story the best you can tell it. That's always going to be the best story that you can tell. But there's all kinds of interesting and fantastic ways that you can restructure a story. If you look at Jeff Vandermeer's City of Saints and Mad Men, that has a really interesting, complex uh, structure with stories within stories and secret stories in it and coded stories and it's a series of stories linked together and so forth. Or if you have a story by like the writer Kelly Link called Lull, which is basically has a kind of a spiral structure to it, not so much linear, but it's made up of all these little teeny tiny stories and it's kind of spirals around this central theme. Uh, you know, those are really interesting things. And the, the literature of the fantastic lends itself to that because of the content being odd or wondrous or something like that. The reader is not so surprised when the, when the structure follows that form. And then once you get into those kind of structures, those kind of odd, uh, you know, connections and so forth going on in the story, uh, you know, this, you can see things in ways that you wouldn't normally see them in, in literature and in life. So it allows you to, you know, to transcend like the, the your basic viewpoint of life and the fact that everything is linear, one step has to come after the other and so forth. Your novel, The Portrait of Mrs. Charbuque, takes a rather different tack. It's really pretty much a mainstream novel in many ways. It just has tinges of the fantastic. I'd like you to talk about the research you did to recreate New York, the research you did about the portrait painting, and tell us how you let the fantastic edge into this wonderful novel. Well, I was getting desperate when I was writing the book because I, I had to do, this is the first book I ever did any kind of historical research on, you know. Uh, so uh, I, just as I was getting started, started to write, and I've re I'd read, read some things, I'd seen a video show about old New York. It takes place in uh, 1892 or 93. I found this book on the, on, the, on the shelf in Barnes & Noble called Moses King's... Um, Almanac of New York City for for it was the, for the exact year that the book was about, and it was a reprint edition. It was just came out of the blue, like one of those things that you find when you're, you're getting ready to write a novel, and stuff just starts popping up. You know what I? Uh, it happens sometimes. But this book had in it like how much was a cup of coffee at a particular restaurant at that in that year, where all the statues in New York were, where the, all the um, you know the facilities were where the parks were, the names of famous people in the city. Just about anything that you could possibly ask for was in this book. So that became a great resource, all right? Then there were quite a few other things I found on the web. I found some films. So all of this stuff came together. Now, your first inclination is you want to use it all because you went and found it. You know what I mean? Which is a big mistake because a little of this stuff goes such a long way. And I, I, I kind of got the idea of this from... There's a writer now, Andy Duncan, who writes short fiction. A lot of it's historical. 
And I noticed with him that when he writes, he uses only a couple of little details, but he builds a very convincing portrait, you know what I mean, of, of the time. So I had to chop out a lot of stuff. And it, it was get, what happened, it was getting in the way of the story, you know, and it can't get in the way of the story. <clears throat> so I did a lot of historical research like that, and then I, I started to build it. But then what I did with the story was I used elements of fairy tales and uh, elements of like 19th century fantastic tales as a backdrop for it or as, as at the edges of the story, like you said, so that it's always present in the stories that are told. Because what it is is a portrait painter commissioned to paint the portrait of a woman who he's not allowed to see. She, she sits behind a screen and tells him stories about her life, and then he's supposed to capture her image from that. And the story she begins telling him, it's completely bizarre about the, her father having this machine where he read, divined the future through snow crystals, and he would view these snow crystals, you know. And um, that idea I got because there was, there was this guy in upstate New York called Snowflake Benton who used to take photographs of, which I found on the web, and just these amazing photographs of... Uh, of uh, snowflakes, you know what I mean? But that in itself seems fantastic. An old guy out there in like the turn of the century catching snowflakes and looking at them under a microscope and taking pictures of them, you know? It has kind of a fantasy element to it in, in itself. So I try to weave all of this stuff in there and tell a story with nods toward the Arabian Nights and toward certain Red Riding Hood is, is featured it. There's a character called Wolf. There's an actual wolf in one of the scenes up in, up in the north when she's up there. So all of these things kind of blend together to make the story. But the, yeah, the, the fantasy element lays in the background more so with that story, except that there is a disease that's kind of ravaging New York at the time called the Tears of Carthage, where if you catch this disease, you bleed through your eyes until you die. All right, So that, that, that's a fantastic element. And people who've read the book have actually asked me, is that true? You know, because I made up this whole backstory for it where this was a thing that the Phoenicians came up with in their travels to Africa, which is an exsanguinary disease, where they discovered this. And because the Romans sacked uh, Carthage, they sent women to them, to the Romans, with this perfume on that had this ex exsanguinary disease in it that made them bleed through their eyes. And then it was captured for a long time in this vessel that looks sort of like a magic lantern, you know what I mean? So all of this stuff came, you know, came, but people ask me, is that really a disease? I mean, is, was that true? That part's real, right? Tell us a little bit about your new novel. Uh, you have a new novel coming out this year? Yeah, I have a novel coming out in a couple of weeks. Um, the Girl in the Glass is from HarperCollins, and it's, uh, it takes place in 1932, and it's about these con men who put on seances for grieving rich people on the Gold Coast of Long Island on the North Shore. The gentleman who's, who's the head of the con troupe, Thomas Shell, he's like a card sharp, and he's kind of a con man. He's really good at these seances. And then he has a friend who was an ex-Carnival uh, strongman whose, name, whose stage name was Anthony Cleopatra, but whose uh, real name is Henry Bruhl. And he, those two were partners. And he adopts this kid, uh, this uh, Mexican kid, illegal Mexican kid, Diego. And that's who the story's told from, his point of view. What happens is one of the seances, Shell actually thinks he sees a ghost, and he's completely a cynic, you know what I mean? Everything is a, is a scam to him. Love, friendship, everything it seems to be a scam, but then he actually thinks he sees a ghost, and his, he begins to change. And it's the kids really chronicling of them trying to find out who the ghost of this little girl is and what happened to her, and chronicling the change of Shell, and also it's Diego's kind of coming-of-age story. But in the undercurrent, what was going on at the time, historically, 
You had the reason why Shell brings Diego into the act as a Hindu is because they having what's going on at the time is the Mexican repatriation where they're, where they're rounding up uh, Mexicans who were working in the country at that time and sending them back to Mexico, whether they were legal, illegal, born here or anything, you know, anything. So that's why they, they made him, he poses as a Hindu in this act and like he has this whole, his name is Andu, you know, so everybody has a, a different disguise or a different personality to try to get by in this world of the depression, you know. It's about the KKK on Long Island. I was amazed to find out, having grown up on Long Island, that the, that the Ku Klux Klan was huge on Long Island in the 1920s. One out of every seven people was probably associated with it. Uh, and also the Eugenics Record Office, which was you know, the, run by very wealthy people in this country. And the idea was that they needed to cleanse the bloodline because really the, the Depression wasn't blamed on them because those were, they were the power brokers. They couldn't blame themselves for the stuff they'd done. They had to blame it on people who were, you know, uh, least able to deal with it or who were foreigners so they could point the finger at. So they began this eugenics movement where you had, you wanted to, they wanted to cleanse the bloodline. This was actually, were, this, these were the words they used. And uh, they, they wanted to sterilize people who were quote unquote idiots and so forth, you know. So that they felt that if they could, they could sterilize or cleanse the situation so you got back down to like wasps you know what i mean purely wasps in the country then the economics of the situation would situation would improve because you know what you have here are these shiftless masses that are causing all the problem you know when in reality it was the you know economic uh moves by these people in power that probably put you know that was part of the problem in, in relation to in addition to the dust bowl and those kind of things that caused the economic problems of the of the depression and what happened was this eugenics movement was transported to Europe in the by the guise of Henry Ford in reality he was not only tra uh, you know exporting his uh, assembly line and his cars and his his you know uh, his wares but he was also exporting this philosophy to Europe and it really caught fire in Europe. And one of the people who was really, really influenced by Ford is Hitler. Uh, Hitler had a picture of Henry Ford in his office. And uh, you know, if you have, if you know anything about Hitler and the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a you know a totally anti-Semitic tract that he published in his uh, his newspaper in the uh, Dearborn, Michigan. You know what I mean? Scarlet stuff. The Jews basically need to be destroyed transferred this to uh, Germany and I mean that's where the idea came from people think this was a homegrown German idea but this came right out of the United States of, of the 1930s you know and before in 1920s out of this eugenics record office Cold Spring Harbor and there was also one out in uh, California and there were this there were eugenics conferences at the time this stuff was everywhere you know at that time period most people don't remember it though you know what I mean they don't think about it Tell us a little bit about why you decided to write this book now and the research that went into it. Well, the, re the research for this book was easier in a way than uh, Mrs. Charbou because there were people around who remember this time period. My dad, it, it takes place on Long Island basically and also in New York City, but my dad lived through this period so I could ask him a lot about what was the island like at this time and he has friends and you know relatives, I have relatives that could give me first-hand information about things that are no longer on Long Island and so forth that were going on at the time. That was easier. The web had some great stuff on it. Some of it takes place in Coney Island, found great sites on that. The reason why I chose to write this now is I really see a lot of connections between 
where the country's at as far as its um, relationship, number one, with Mexico, and number two, the idea that when times get bad, you know, uh, people, some people get with it and can become wonderful people, but a lot of people get racist when times get bad economically. And I really think that we're on the verge of a real economic turndown in this country. The dollar seems to be circling the toilet bowl as we speak. I mean, here we are, we're sitting in Scotland now. You know, every dollar is, what's it worth? It's worth 50 cents on the pound over here, you know what I mean? China, Japan doesn't really, aren't really getting less and less interested in buying our debt. I mean, I I see the the economy going, you know, south to, to some extent. People will argue with that. But at the same time, I see these problems on the border with Mexico. You have these vigilante groups along the border. They're having real problems. There's a lot of problems in California. And I'm not just saying that, that people, who are, people who are native here are having problems with, with you know, Mexicans because of the race. That's part of it. And that's going to come up through it. But, you know, these are real problems on both sides. You know, there are real problems for both groups of these people. There seems to be no ready answer and no kind of movement at all on the part of our administration to do anything about it. You know what I mean? Any kind of credible situation at all. And so without that, without any kind of thought or movement in any, in any direction to kind of solve this problem, I think it's going to get really bad again. And, and when things get bad and the economy starts to drop, they're going to be looking for scapegoats, and that's going to be one of the scapegoats. You know, the, the, this group of people are going to be, you know, one of the scapegoats for whatever the situation is. And so I think that what went on at that time, you know, it really resonates with, uh, with today. Because the other thing is this. A lot of this stuff remained underground, and people weren't aware of it, even though it was right under their nose. And I feel the exact same things going on today with the Bush administration, with the things that they do. You know, people are just so just choose to be so unaware of uh, the crimes against the American public that's perpetra- that are perpetrated by this administration. You know what I mean? And just going to let it go and go and go till one day they wake up and it's going to be at their front doorstep. You know. So you're using the literature of the fantastic to talk about the scapegoats of yesterday, the scapegoats of today, and the scapegoats of tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you know, uh, there, there are elements of fantastic in this book. But even if I was writing, a, you know, a book about uh, literature of the fantastic, I mean, you could get all of these ideas in there. And not only that, but it would be entertaining. I mean, in this book is really more of a, a crime story based on, the, you know, the style of Dashiell Hammett. But it's entertaining. There's a plot to it. It has a drive to it. So you can, get, you can get these ideas across using a lot of times these, uh, these forms that are, are, are basic to like pulp fiction, to genre fiction, you know what I mean? And have a nice package of ideas and, and, and entertainment and uh, emotion, you know what I mean, uh, working at the same time. It's much more exciting than a lot of literary writing where it just sits on the page. You have to take out your uh, thesaurus and so forth, you know, to delve into it and so which is nice too. I mean, I went to college, I did all that stuff, but I just wanted, I want a damn good story and I want it to move me, you know what I mean? I want there to be ideas, but I want to get there sometime this week, you know, you know what I'm saying? So that's why I like this kind of writing. <laughs> We've been speaking with Jeff Ford here at Worldcon 2005. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you very much.